0: This episode of the Paddock Pass Podcast is brought to you by Renthal Street Grips. For comfort, durability, and grip diameter options, Renthal Street has a grip for everyone.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Paddock Pass Podcast, brought to you by Renthal Street. Check out renthal.com for chains, sprockets, handlebar mounts, and the Fit My Bike option to give you all the options available for your motorcycle. On today's pod, we've got a very special guest. We've got Dennis Noyes back on the podcast for the first time in 18 months. And as usual, Adam, David, Neil and myself, Steve. Bring you all the news from the MotoGP paddock ahead of the Indian Grand Prix, but David, let's come straight to you then because you're a holiday man, Emmet. At the minute,
0: we added on, tacked on a little bit of a holiday to uh, the Mizana race and test. We've been up by Lake Garda uh, today. We travelled to Venice, where we found that um, uh, public transport was on strike, and so I had we had a bit of an adventure getting from the um from the train station where we dropped the car off to the uh, to our ho- uh, to our hotel which meant sort of you know lugging a suitcase halfway across Venice so i've um, i've had my workout as well i know dennis likes to go cycling but um uh, uh, trying to figure out what time he would go cycling when it's 120 degrees Fahrenheit which is what 40 something 46 47 i don't
2: know You just go out there when it's 120 and you just ride your bike if you meet anybody and if you meet anybody else out there they're crazy too
1: <laughs> <laughs> I was I was going to say, Dennis, that that's pretty much been Neil's approach for everything in life. Just go straight into it. And Neil, you were also a holiday man this week, so uh, you're obviously nice and relaxed ahead of uh, the Indian Grand Prix this week.
3: Yeah, uh, holiday man for the next two weeks as well, Steve. I'm not going to either India or Japan, um, and I have to say, looking at some of the uh, the chaos surrounding the visas to get to India, uh, I'm, I think I'm quite. Uh, quite pleased with my selection not to not to go to this one um i think adam what you're traveling wednesday morning but still awaiting your visa and we're recording monday night so uh, yeah a couple of people are i think getting a bit nervous about
4: yeah, I think it's uh, it's not just me, Neil. It's the half of the paddock, it seems. Uh, it's uh, I mean, this is also be good to get sort of Dennis's perspective on this. But, you know, a new Grand Prix, a new circuit, a new organizer, uh, there's inevitable kind of obstacles, I guess, to that. And at the moment, we're negotiating one of those. Um, yeah, basically, yeah, I've got a flight at 7 a.m. on Wednesday. So unless I get the visa tomorrow, and I know there's various people, well, several people, uh, close contacts who are traveling Travelling Tuesday morning, and they're still waiting. So, I don't know how it's going to work out. Maybe we'll have to do a remote paddock pass podcast from the Indian Grand Prix.
1: Just when you mentioned that, I'd, obviously the visa issue is something that's clearly affecting everyone in the paddock, but new circuits, new Grand Prix are always a challenge. The first time going to any of these places is always tough. And Dennis, you've got first hand experience of how difficult it is to get a Grand Prix off the ground and uh, organise a race. So, from your experience, What's the biggest challenges that any new circuit or any new country faces whenever they're trying to host a race for the first time?
2: Well, I mean, one of the races that I worked in was the early days of Dorna that we went to several new tracks. But the main thing was going back to tracks that had had Grand Prix before and that were renewing Grand Prix, but under a new organization with a lot more strict rules like Laguna Seca, for example. Um, When we went back to Laguna, uh, I was operating out of a motorhome, sitting in the paddock, uh, and I remember I got information just a couple of days before everybody was going to show up that we had to cut the track and put the uh, <clears throat> put the the uh, uh, wires across the track so that we could mark the section times. And uh, when you're when you're working as the outside promoter talking to track owners, tension gets there's there's a lot of tension. And I remember they told me, no way you're going to do that. We're not going to do it. We're just not going to do it. And then my people show up from Spain. Uh, Roberto Naceto was race director at that time. And he comes into what was my office then holding the regulations in his hand and talking to me as if I was not a Dorna person at all. And I remember right in front of all those Americans looking to see just how this Spanish company operated. I seemed to have taken the regulation out of his hand and torn it up and thrown it at him. <laughs> upon he went and sat in his office and pouted until Carmelo showed up and sorted it out. And then when we were getting Bruno, uh, Czech Republic running again after it had been off the schedule, uh, we were out there doing a circuit inspection. I was with Pep Villa, who's Dorna's <clears> Dorna's <throat> special solve-any-kind-of-problem man. He's the miracle man. Whenever something goes wrong, <clears throat> you see him on television once in a while, but he's never identified. He's always there, running around in the back. And I'm walking along with Pep, and suddenly he fell over. He just fell over on the ground. We were checking runoff area, and a golf ball was laying on the ground beside him, and he'd been hit by a drive. Somebody was uh, didn't know there was a Grand Prix there at Bruno, and they were just hitting drives, and they uh, took him out. <laughs> were you <laughs> playing there, okay. Steve?
1: If the circuit was on the right-hand side of the fairway, I would have probably hit him. But if it was down the left-hand side, I can certainly say it wouldn't have been me.
2: But I remember one of the biggest problems that we had. Uh, there wasn't uh... now. This was the second year of the of the coming back to Laguna Seca. Kenny Roberts ran it the first year, but when we were uh, running it the second year, we didn't have a single person in the United States who was eligible to be race director, so we had to bring in an Australian, uh, and uh, we got Toyotas from the sponsor, and this is even back in 19, gosh, uh, uh, 94. and Toyota had sensors on their cars, transponders, so you could locate them, and I got a call in my office saying, uh, your race director's car has been parked out back of the county jail for the past <laughs> three days. <laughs> and so, but fortunately, Wayne Rainey uh, had a lot of friends in the, uh, you know, the county police there. So we were able to get him out. But then when he came back after, it was DUI, but, you know, when he came back, uh, we asked him a lot of questions about his sightseeing up the coast. We made him describe places he'd never been and tell us all about it. That, that, you know, we had a lot of, a lot of that kind of problem.
1: I have to say, Dennis, actually one time at Laguna, myself and Charlie Hiscott nearly ended up back in the county jail as well. For it, it, We were completely wrongly targeted. It was terrible, really. But uh, just for being complete idiots, we nearly got arrested and uh, brought down. But it all ended up working out all right, just like it does for most circuits as well, whenever push comes to shove.
2: Well when you go to a new a new uh, Grand Prix venue or one that's been off the schedule for a while, you're no longer you no longer have the charmed life that you do when you're the Grand Prix promoter that comes in every year and all you do is flash your you know, your 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 card and and you're okay. But I remember John Kaczynski at the United States Grand Prix in nineteen ninety three somehow got removed from his car by the police without unfastening his seatbelt. Which is, <laughs> and, This was after the race because John, this was his, he was running with Wayne Rainey and he told everybody he was going to beat Wayne. And the way he was going to do it was he was going to get the lead on the first lap and pull away. And he crashed on the exit from turn two. So it worked up until that point. As you know, turn two is actually what most people think of as turn one because turn one is the bump on the, you know, the little hump on the start of the straightaway. And John was so angry about that, that he jumped in his car and took off at great speed. And uh, you know, was apprehended we got him out of county jail same county jail we got the race director out of
4: dennis what's um what's the story with laguna now because they've been doing renovations right and modifications uh, have you been able to see any of it or heard, heard about any of the changes at all to the circuit
2: i talk to wayne often uh and wayne of course uh, you know he runs moto america uh, he believes that that racetrack could still host a grand prix but he doesn't think it will uh, but maybe a World Superbike.
1: Yeah, because that's one of the things that we've heard in our paddock is that especially since all the work was done this year to repave Laguna, do a lot of work as well, I think on one of the access bridges, a lot of it is that Laguna is trying to host big events again. They've got IndyCar obviously still there. They had the season finale like two weeks ago, I think it was. They want to have big bike races. MotoGP in all likelihood can't really go back to Laguna, but World Superbikes can. And there's a lot of motivation to put us back there mainly because for CODA, for the MotoGP race, the reason Moto America isn't that interested in supporting MotoGP is they're out at 8.45, they're treated like a support class. And for Moto America, they're used to being the headline building for a superbike class. So that's where in World Superbikes, if you put the domestic championship and the world championship on at the same weekend, then you can end up having a really good doubleheader weekend. And that's one of the things that is a motivating factor for Laguna to try and get back as a, as a a as a world championship venue again.
2: That's feasible. One of the places you've got a problem is turn six, because you really can't expand the runoff area there because then you go on to an American military base, which is Fort Ord next door. Um, so that's I want to say, we-
1: Dennis, that's not why me and Charlie were nearly arrested. We didn't try and go <laughs> on to a military base. <laughs>
2: Hey, I'll tell you. I'll tell you what about Fort Ord, real quick, man. When I was running the U.S. Grand Prix, we did a bad contract. We were new in the game, and the scramp guys were smarter than we were. And they said, "Okay, you guys, Dorna, you get the gate. People, people pay. You get the money they pay to buy tickets. We get the porridge. That is, we get the beer, the you know, the the, the meals and everything inside. And they ran the security." Now, there's something wrong with that, if you think about it, because they have no reason <laughs> to try and keep people out. They want as many people in as possible, right? So I'm sitting there talking to these security people that I realize are not going to be... Another thing, you cannot, sep- you cannot put a fence around an army base. An army base can put a fence around you or separate themselves from you, but you can't fence them off So everybody came in, all the knowing people. California came in through what they called the Ho Chi Minh Trail which you just walked right onto the Laguna Seca track through the army base and there was nothing you could do about it. Well, I called uh, the old Mickey Thompson Entertainment Group in Los Angeles, a good friend of mine Jerry Stansberry, and I said, "Fix this for me." He said 5,000, 10,000, something like that. And when the racing began, I noticed on Thursday, the first day that you had to have passes to get in, I saw people with red paint in their hair, red paint on their shirt, red paint on their faces. And Ger- and Jerry told me all the people that are painted in red don't have tickets because my people have shot them with paint guns when they came in off. The- <laughs> and you know, that really that the word went around really fast and we had a better entry because of that.
1: Adam, I'm I'm gonna actually put you on the spot now. India this weekend, obviously you're you're gonna be on your way out to India hopefully in the next 48 hours. A lot of circuits that have been new circuits that have joined the calendar, and then a few that were established. So you know, the Red Bull ring was the old A1 ring and things like that. Obviously, Coda was a brand new facility. Argentina was a new facility. Thailand was a new facility. But most of those places had other events leading up to them. You know, whether it was World Superbikes for Indonesia or, well, Buriram as well with World Superbikes. I think Coda had a few other big events in the build-up that were going to host Formula One as well. So there was a lot of those circuits have had a nice easy way to ramp themselves up to hosting a GP. This is a bit different for India because the MotoGP paddock is so big. World Superbike is a much smaller paddock, especially whenever we only travel with, say, two classes, Super Sport and Superbike, to most of these venues. That lends itself to India being a little bit more of a challenge as
4: well. Well, I think, Steve, the the biggest issue at the moment, I mean, we've seen, particularly in the last two to three years, transportation has become tricky and expensive. Uh, I think we lost a day at the Japanese Grand Prix because things didn't arrive in time. Um, From what we've seen so far, everything seems to be arriving in India. It's like the the equipment, the bikes, and everything are there, but the people aren't. So it's almost like an inverse problem to what we've had in the past. So I just want I'm wondering how everything's going to be able to to fit around this logistical nightmare of of getting through um, the customs and the border control. Uh, I think also this Grand Prix is slightly unusual uh, compared to a typical Doner Grand Prix in that the local organizer is bearing a lot of the organizational. Brunt of responsibility to get around the very complex tax and importation problems that have affected the Formula One race. I mean, they only took their place there for three years, and then if you look at some of the history of the Bud International Circuit, if I'm saying that correctly, then it's hosted uh, kind of um, national car launch events. It's hosted marathons. Um, it's done certain other kind of regional stuff but never anything on the scale of an FIM or FIA event so it's uh, I think that complexity of getting into Indonesia is something that the donor and their, their promotional partner, I think it's called Barat, Barat Promotions Group or something, are currently wading through.
0: Yeah, because it does seem like bureaucracy and sort of tax systems and that sort of thing is the much bigger problem than, than anything else. It does seem like we've got all the equipment there. The other thing is you've got to get it all back out again and pass customs, which is always, uh, uh, always a problem. Did, did you ever have anything to do with you know, local bureaucracy or customs or anything like that when you were organizing, uh, Dennis?
2: wow uh, the the first year in laguna seca uh all the problems came from the championship itself because at that time bernie ecclestone uh was taking care of the freight uh with a guy named uh, billy gibson a really nice guy from australia and billy made a mistake when he sent the fax with the cost of the freight he meant to send it to bernie but he sent it to mike trimby getting a little ahead of ourselves right here he sent it to mike trimby and mike realized that bernie was charging double uh for the freight So Mike got into a real state about that. And like he did, he went out and organized his own freight. So we had the freight wars at Misano. That was the same weekend of Wayne Rainey's accident, so it didn't make such a big news story. But at that time, Bernie had his trucks in the paddock loading up all the factory teams. And Irta went with all the private teams, completely different bunch of trucks, Uh, Bernie flew out of uh, Italy, and Mike had to run all his trucks into Austrian fly-out. When he got to the Austrian border, somebody had told the Austrians that the IRTA trucks were carrying some kind of illegal substances, and uh, they were slow getting through there. And then when uh, Bernie's freight showed up in Laguna Seca, somebody had told the U.S. border guard that Bernie's trucks were carrying drugs. So the two were fighting each other. Mike never confessed that he had retaliated because I don't think he'd do that because he wanted to get the. But anyway, yeah, we had problems with freight. Uh, Billy Gibson, uh, the next year, came in with the freight uh, because the second year it was all sorted out. Eirto was paying the right price, and they were employing co- the freight shippers themselves. He came in the Laguna, and my job was to find a truck, find the trucks. I sent him the price. He said that's too expensive. I know a guy who lives on a hill that's got trucks. And we got all the motorcycles into Laguna Seca. We went up and talked to this guy that lived on a hill and he had flatbed trucks and we carried all the Grand Prix bikes on flatbed trucks, open and exposed, out to the racetrack like a big parade. <laughs>
0: it's quite a good idea, really. I mean, you know, it is much better than having them all uh, packed away in, in flight cases. It's much more of something to see.
2: Well, I think Dorna would like that. Now they could put the riders on the bikes and then bring them on <laughs> trucks from the racetrack.
0: If the riders get their visas, <laughs> it's
1: a it's a just a good step on the rider parade on the Sunday morning. Just in relation to the calendar, then as well, like this is obviously a brand new track. Putting it at the start of a triple header is always going to be a tough one as well. Like it, it is difficult to slot events into calendars. Dennis, from your perspective, what do you think of how it takes to actually build a calendar? Because you need circuits to agree to dates. You need to have availability for other championships as well to, to fit in around like everyone looks at it and thinks that you're the only game in town but everyone's got a jigsaw that they've got a lot of pieces to have to put together
2: well when you're running a series of three races in a row the most important one is making sure the first one gets off to a good start so uh they're doing it right in that respect they've given themselves two weeks uh you know 10 days or something to get the freight over there before they have to make the, the next move uh, I think actually, World Freight works pretty well. The only time we really had a lot of trouble uh, was at the beginning of the, uh, you know, the, the Ukraine Russia uh, war, when the big freight companies, some of them Russian that we'd worked with, that Dorna had worked with before, uh, were no longer on the table. And uh, that freight that was going to Argentina, as you recall, some of those airplanes were, uh, you know, they were they were they were pretty old.
1: Neil, just uh, about this weekend then as well. Obviously, brand new circuit. How do teams prepare for something like that?
3: Uh, well, I guess they've. Uh, I think Dorna people have been out there in India for a while. Um, there's been, uh, I think, quite a lot of onboard footage provided uh, to the riders. They've been kind of analysing that in in recent weeks. Um, I mean, I guess, um, yeah, you can you can sort of get a, an idea of what the circuit will hold from from videos like that. I mean, it's uh, it's a strange circuit in that. It is a Herman Tilke designed uh, layout, which always gives me the uh, the kind of skeptical eye. I'm not sure if that always lends itself particularly well to motorcycle racing. He's not got the best track record, with one or two minor exceptions. There's a couple of interesting elevation changes on the track. Um, a few bits that remind me of. The track in Shanghai, actually, the sort of last corner is a sort of uh, 90-degree left-hander on the start-finish straight. There's also like a very long straight down into a very, very, very narrow, slow hairpin. Um, But I guess the state of the track is probably going to be what we'll we'll be discussing on on Thursday and Friday. As uh, as you were mentioning, there hasn't maybe been so much action on this track recently. Um, Riders, I guess, need to assess if parts of the track are... uh, are, are, are suitable, really, to host a, a motorcycle Grand Prix. Uh, a few guys have expressed concerns about uh, the positioning of the wall. I think on the exit of Turn 3, um, you know, Luca Marini rather sardonically um, said, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens whenever a few riders hit the wall uh, on the outside of Turn 3 and, and, you know, what will happen after that. So it's clear that a few guys think that, well, they're certainly skeptical about it and um, I guess they're willing to reserve judgment until Thursday but it will be really fascinating to see exactly what their kind of feedback is once they once they get to the track and once they see what it looks like.
1: Just about what you mentioned there Neil about the circuit being one of the Herman Tilke tracks he doesn't tend to have great bike tracks but he does have some Shanghai was always good Sepang was good and this is one of his faster tracks as well I think back whenever it was still in the F1 calendar it was fourth or fifth fastest average lap speed so it should be a good track, so long as, like you said, the the track is in good condition.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, I don't know. We've seen a, a couple of photos from the the place recently, like within the last two weeks, and it does seem as though there is quite a lot of work still being done to try to get it up to, you know, a decent standard. Adam, you've heard a few things that um, you know people have been working well into the night to to get things last minute up to date.
4: Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, I, from what I can gather, there's a there's a large army of, of people working at the site to get stuff ready. I guess we'll see the level of presentation. Um, I don't know what kind of level of expectation we should have for that. But, uh, you know, when it comes to the state of the asphalt, I mean, it's recently been homologated, which we heard was going to happen right before the Grand Prix started. Of course, we know the riders are going to have more track time uh, to be able to dial in the settings and get everything ready. I think also there's going to be a lot of curiosity about how MotoGP is received. You know, how good have they been with local promotion? How are they going to be able to entice? I think uh, New Delhi is one of the two biggest cities in India, um, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. So it's um, I was reading an article recently, I think in one British um, newspaper, just how India is on the edge of becoming a major, major world economy. Um, you know, a major sort of economic force uh, globally. I mean, of course, the biggest issue in the country seems to be the, the spread of poverty um, and New Delhi being a, a, a sort of magnificent metropolis. I'm sure there's going to be quite a few examples of that. But, uh, yeah, I mean, how the Bud International Circuit, like you say, Neil, we've seen from, from videos, uh, drone shot uh, footage and, and photo photography. Riders getting used to it. Alesha Spargaro posted, I think, a video or some photos of him and Jorge Martin playing some sort of sim version of it, trying to get used to the track. Um I think just the sense of mystery around it and whether we're going to see 20,000 people there or 200,000 people there, that's that's the, one of the biggest questions.
1: I think for me, it's always interesting whenever you look at the new circuits, and this is the first time you guys have gone to a properly brand new circuit in, in a long time. I remember for Indonesia, we had people still painting walls, finishing off pit complexes, all this kind of stuff. There was a big change from Mandalika from when we went there in November, and then MotoGP came for the test, and then the first race. Within the space of that four, five, six months, the place was actually making big changes. But to actually just host the first race, deadline spur activity, and that's why you always end up where there's still work to be done right at the end. And that goes the same for the circuit homologation as well, because there was a lot of talk about the homologation. But one of the big things that you see year in year, whenever you go to new circuits, and like I said, World Superbikes goes to a lot of new tracks, and we've seen it where the circuit is homologated on the Wednesday, the Thursday of their first event. And that was the same for Indonesia. It was done for an Asia Talent Cup race that it would host around a week before World Superbikes. But the track gets homologated right at the end. It was the same in Argentina for us as well. So I think the track is going to be fine. It's, it's met all the FIM standards. And now it's just a case of trying to get use on it again, because obviously there isn't that much racing that's happened on it over the last few years.
0: Yeah. Uh, yes. I mean, people are sort of acting like that nobody's seen the 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 track before, and it's not like because people do get sort of a bit excited about uh, the track being homologated on uh, what is it uh, on the on the Wednesday or the Thursday. But it's not as if that nobody's seen the track. There's been a lot of communication. Uh, They've already been vi- uh, visits out there. I think rossi has been uh, uh, recently, and I think Carlos Espelater has been recently to me. The new safety officer has been, um, uh, but it's been a while. And uh, you know, they 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 tell people what needs doing, and they presume that it's going to get, that it's going to get done. And then you walk around at the uh, at, at the sort of ahead of the race to make sure that it has all been done
4: yeah i think uh the formula one from what i saw of old reports i know it's 10 years ago the the, the drivers were very complimentary about the track um it seemed to go you know, get some good reviews i think the biggest issue the riders are going to find is the level of grip um you know what's the asphalt going to be like um in terms of traction are we going to be looking at a barcelona or is it actually going to be surprisingly uh grippy but, you know, this is something that obviously is going to improve as more rubber is laid down over the weekend.
0: Yeah, I mean, you, I think you're going to be looking at a, a situation a lot like uh, the Argentina races or maybe Mandalika, where uh, you tend to get a bit of one line, certainly at the beginning until the, until the track leans up. Uh, and then looking at the track, it does look a bit stop-and-go-y. So it's going to be, uh, you know, you sort of like feel that the Ducatis will do well and you feel that the KTMs which seems to be very good at both stop-and-go tracks and at tracks with lower grip, um, uh, it, You know they could really put on a, put on a show there.
1: And uh, just as Adam had mentioned about the extra track time, it's an hour and 10 minutes for each of the practice sessions for MotoGP on Friday, so at least there is that little bit more time to be able to spend out on the track. We're going to have to take a quick break on the Paddock Pass podcast, but when we come back, we're going to look at some of the other news within the MotoGP paddock right now.
0: Renthal Street Ultralight Rear Sprockets are CNC machine from an advanced aluminum, keeping rotating unsprung mass to a minimum. The integral hard anodized finish has a higher resistance to mechanical wear, which increases its longevity. Available for a huge range of motorcycles, with options for a number of teeth and chain pitch. Use the Fit My Bike tool on renthal.com to find the correct fitment for your bike
1: welcome back to the paddock pass podcast brought to you by renthal street and as we sat down to record this it had just been announced franco morbidelli is going to be a pramac ducati rider for next season so the italian switching from ducati from yamaha to ducati machinery next year and neil it hasn't come as a surprise to anyone it's been on the cards for much of the the last couple of months that he was going to be a ducati rider whether or not it would be in the vo46 team or the pramac team as it is Given the recent news from the VR46 crew, no surprise that Franco's gone there.
3: Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, Franco was uh, being spoken of as a, a potential Ducati rider in waiting from the you know before the summer break, as you mentioned, Steve. And then when Bezecchi opted to stay in VR46, then it seemed that uh, you know Franco was always going to be on that Pramac bike. Um, you have to say it's uh, pretty remarkable for a guy that okay finished second back in 2020 in the MotoGP World Championship, but is now in his seventh season in MotoGP um, and has finished 17th, 19th in his past two championships and now uh, is currently 12th. And he's managed to grab himself the best bike on the grid for 2024. Um, so, you know, I love Franco. I think he's a, a big, big talent. Um, you know, when the, the circumstances are right, when he's got the right environment around him, he can be exceptional, Um, but you'd have to say on the basis of recent form, he's extremely fortunate to have kind of ended up in this situation.
1: Just when you look at that, Neil, you mentioned the 2020 season and that season's becoming more and more of an outlier almost every time you look back at that campaign. And Juan Mir winning the World Championship, Morbidelli was second, Paul was fifth, I think, in that stage. I think the only thing that was probably consistent with other seasons was Vinales was really good for a certain part of a season and then was nowhere for the rest of it. But other than that, like that season does look like obviously COVID, COVID impacted on it quite a bit. We went to the same venues for back-to-back weekends. There was a lot of circumstances that made that season really stand out as being a very strange one.
2: I think one thing that you have to wonder about is how does Fabio Quateraro look at all this? He's got his teammate who's going to the best motorcycle in the paddock and he's still sitting there on the Yamaha.
0: Yeah, and he wasn't particularly pleased um, at the end of the test. You know, like he, he was saying at the end of the test in Misano that you know he had he'd expected more. Uh, he was saying you know sure the bike is better, the, the bike has got a bit more horsepower, um, but he was sort of expecting really a lot more horsepower and a lot more sort of horsepower everywhere, uh, really from 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 the bottom ends to to the top. And it, it just wasn't there. And he did not sound like a man who was going to be putting his uh, his. Uh, Pen to paper on a contract with Yamaha at the beginning of the 2020 uh, 24 season. Uh, I think he's definitely going to be be asking around, and I think he will definitely be watching what Franco does.
4: Going back to Morbidelli for a moment, do do we think that this also might be a little bit of a fallout from the Bezecchi negotiations where VR46 obviously sort of sunk their claws into the number one guy? Um, you know, but also they want to look after Franco, and that was kind of their their ploy, really, to propose a you know a decent second option for Ducati. Maybe that was something they used to sort of entice them to take Franco.
1: I think for me, I'd like one of the things, and and uh, uh, one of the things that's interesting for me about the whole way that this has transpired is it's very similar to when the Vr46 Academy came in against the Italian Federation, and then everyone stopped wanting to be an Italian Federation rider and wanted to be a Vr46 rider. Now you've got it where it's Ducati engineers are in the same boat. Everyone's centrally contracted in the past to Ducati. Now you can be a VR46 contracted engineer rider and give yourself the chance of what you want to have for your career. And it's one of those things now where they're flexing and they're showing just how powerful they are as not as an independent team, but as just strong as any other team in the paddock.
3: I was casting some doubt as to whether Franco was entirely deserving of the the Pramac seat, but I I still do think it's going to be a pretty good signing. Like I think Franco is an excellent rider when he's on a a really competitive bike. And as I said, when he's in an environment which kind of suits him, um, I don't think being uh, in a factory team is maybe the ideal environment for him being somewhere like Petronas Yamaha, where we saw him in 2020 have his best year. Pramac again, Jorge Martín is clearly going to be the number one rider in that team, but he can maybe just sort of uh, be in the shade without as much pressure on his shoulders. I think it is an environment that, that should suit him. And obviously the bike's going to be fantastic, judging on what we've seen from Ducati over the last two or three years. So um, I, I do think he can do some interesting things for sure.
1: Uh, just
3: in relation to Franco, just as a comparison, he's always
1: been one of those, and Neil mentioned there about the, the challenge of being the factory rider and maybe you're not always best suited for that. He's always been one of those... Riders free to have an opinion about a lot of things. He's quite similar to Cal Crutchlow in a lot of ways, even though their, their personalities are totally different. But Cal was always much happier as a factory contracted rider, but not in a factory team. You think to his LCR days compared to whenever he was on the factory Ducati and things like that. Some riders are just better suited to maybe not having that ultimate pressure of being on the factory bike.
4: Yeah, I mean, that's a good observation, Steve. I think um, Franco is probably the more bohemian of the riders in, on the MotoGP grid. I agree with Neil that he can feel slightly, he should feel fortunate that he's got that role. But I also agree with Neil where I really like him and I really rate him. I think, Dave, you tweeted something today about the news not being a great surprise. But I do think next year, Franco on a Ducati could be one of the big surprises. I think um, people certainly new to MotoGP will wonder, well, you know, what's Franco more morbid going to do he's just been a mid-pack guy for a long time but i i really think this could be a real kick in the ass for his career i think he'll be you know heading for the for the top of the pack although it's interesting because um i was watching The penultimate round of MXGP yesterday, which took place in Majora, Jorge Prado actually became Spain's first ever premier class um, world champion in that sport. And um, they had Digia down there as a guest and they were interviewing him on TV. And, uh, you know, one of the generic questions to him was, how's your season going in MotoGP? And he said he actually thought it's going pretty good. He's had some top 10 finishes and it's going to be very important for his future. And you think, you know, with is surely a, a guy walking on a short plank in MetaGP at the moment. But maybe he does have a point where the results in comparison to other riders on the grid. Uh, maybe we shouldn't be so quick to cast these guys off. Um, and Morbidelli, I think, is is a, a perfect example of that. Yeah,
0: yeah I thought, but I mean, you have to create, you have to compare Adige's um, results to the people on the same bikes. and And he's been... Uh, consistently I mean like you know like I I like him I think he's talented but he's been consistently outclassed by everyone else on that Ducati
1: he's in that situation of you're on the best bike on the grid even if it is the older version on the Grasini. they're not the best team on the grid this that and the other but when you look at what Bastianini did on it last year when you look at the fact that he's two years into his Grand Prix career it's not it's not a, a criticism to say that the team can move on from him And it'd be the right decision, even though he's a good rider, because at the end of the day, like David says, if you're the eighth best Ducati rider, it doesn't really make a difference. If they put someone else on the bike, they'll either be the eighth best Ducati rider or they'll be better. And that's where decisions end up coming from for a lot of these things.
2: Just a bit of perspective on uh, Dovizioso. Um, Ramon Forcada, who was his crew chief, says that of all the riders he's ever worked with, that Morbidelli is one of the most uh, uh, incisive. When it comes to uh, deciding on setup, and when he makes a decision, he sticks to it. He said that um, Forcada said, uh, now that he's not in Yamaha anymore, he thinks that one of the big problems that Yamaha had was confusing talent with uh, uh, the analytical ability to set up a bike. He thought that, uh, that Dovizioso coming into the team, even though he wasn't nearly as fast as Quateraro, had so many good ideas, and that he thought that. Yamaha's real problem was listening to Cuauhtarados say that they needed more engine, more speed, when Dovizioso said, no, you need more mechanical grip. You've got to get that first, because if you just put more horsepower down, you're going to have the problem that I think uh, that he's having now.
1: It's interesting you say that, Dennis, because just to look at one of of the best superbike riders that we've ever seen, Troy Bayless. Troy obviously had some success in MotoGP as well, but... Whenever you talk to Ernesto Maranelli, who was his crew chief in World Superbikes, about what made Troy good, it was that Troy didn't care how a bike felt. The only thing that mattered was if it was faster, it was better. And you could put him out on a bike with three wheels. If it was quicker, he was saying, this is the way you want to go. You could put him out on a bike with triangle wheels. And if it was quicker, he's saying, right, we've got to go for it." it. It feels terrible, but it's faster. And a lot of the times you can get lost in in the analytical nature of things. And that's where some riders are great to be test riders, but other times you need people to push the program on. That's where Pecco was quite good to be really forceful last year and say, I'm not here to be a test rider. I'm here to win races. I'm here to win championships. And he backed that up by getting the job done.
0: It's interesting you were saying about um, uh, Baylis not caring what, uh, well, only caring about lap times and not caring about the uh, not caring about bike setup because one of the things which was really interesting about what Marquez was saying after the test at Misana was, uh, and in fact, he's been saying it for the past couple of races. Like, he's been saying, like, I don't really care what, uh, what they do. I don't care how it feels. All I care about is the lap time. If it's faster, it's, it's faster and as simple as that, which is different to what he's been saying before. You know, he's been saying, look, I need this specifically or I need that specifically. Now all he's saying is uh, it, it needs to be faster. I need to be competitive.
1: Well, just about uh, Mark then as well, Dennis, what's what's your insight and your opinion on the Marquez situation at the minute? Obviously, the guys talked about it last week on the last Paddock Pass podcast, but it's always interesting to hear a perspective from a little bit outside the paddock. And then obviously you're still talking to an awful lot of people still in the paddock day in, day out.
2: Yeah, I was just on the phone a little while earlier talking to one of the Barcelona what well, a couple of the Barcelona journalists who I won't name because they've got theories, and my theory is you never use a journalist as a source. Uh, if you're a journalist, you use a journalist as a link to a source, uh, not as a source itself. Because he's very unless he shows up on the at the scene of the crime and is the first to actually walk in there, the journalist is really telling you what somebody else said. What's really interesting to me is that Reith, uh, Rith, uh, the woman who works for uh, Danzon Television in Spain, uh, just recently went on a podcast saying, I don't care what anybody says, I really think the way it feels right now, Mark is staying at Honda. Now, she gave some reasons for saying that, but let's just look a little bit. Who is She is the wife of Santi Hernandez, who is Marquez's chief mechanic, so it might be more than just a hunch uh, but I don't even know how much Mark shares all of this advice, even with Hernandez. I think so.
0: Uh, I, I mean, I have a question because I remember the uh, the whole um, Valentina Rossi to Ducati saga. That felt like it was properly, you know, like uh, properly announced. Like we knew it was coming. That that had been coming for a little while. Um, the Casey Stone retirement that came completely out of the blue, and then uh, like Valentina going to uh, Valentina going back to Yamaha. That felt like a bit of a surprise to me, either. I didn't really expect that. And but this feels like the situation where I have the least clue of what is going you know what is going on and what's going to happen what mark is going to do i mean i would not be surprised if he does spru- uh, sign for, for christina but i would be surprised wouldn't be surprised if he stays with honda it's just like really bizarre And like i want to ask you dennis can you remember some can you remember a situation which was so confusing when where so few like everyone has theories and nobody has a clue
2: yeah uh <laughs> have to go back a ways though eddie lawson when he made the move uh when he made the move in 1988 over to Honda uh and I you know I all, I finally found out why he did it <laughs> after all these years we thought it was the uh, the the imp- the empire the evil empire that had planned the whole thing as a way to get the Marlboro money from augustini and move it over to Roberts a year later actually what happened was he won the world's championship i remember all the speculation he won the world's championship Agostini went to him and said, congratulations, that's just fantastic, but I'm going to have to cut your salary because Marlboro has decreased our budget. And Eddie just then, you know, jumped on his horse and rode to Switzerland to talk to the Philip Morris people and said, why did you cut Ago's budget? And they said, we didn't uh, cut it, we doubled it. Uh, Ago's just holding out on And he said, I never spoke to Ago again after that, uh, politely. And that's why I made the change. So, mean, I remember, I remember Gunther Wiesinger told me, Eddie is going uh, to Honda. And I didn't write it because Gunther wouldn't give me a source. I said, I can't use you as a source. You got to tell me who told you. So uh, I, I missed that exclusive. But like Gunther always said, so I said Gunther always said, or not, my father always said, who was a war correspondent working during the Second World War and a newspaper guy in New York, he said nobody remembers who gets the exclusive, but that everybody remembers who gets it wrong. Uh,
0: I, uh, if I remember this correctly, because I remember um, uh, the Coleman Hend Koolamans, the Dutch photographer, was saying that he was up there shooting some photographs for something, and then all of a sudden they rolled this, uh, they rolled this Honda with uh, with uh, Eddie Lawson sort of. Signature on the front of it, and he he just happened to see it, and he was I think he was sworn to secrecy. So I I, I, and again, this is me remembering a story from a long from a long time. But he he was like the first person to actually see it and to take a picture. I think he also had the exclusive photographs. He was sworn to secrecy as long as he as long as he was promised the uh, the exclusive photographs.
3: I think with the uh, with the Mark thing, you would say an idea of how everyone has a theory, but no one has a clue. What we were talking about at Mizano, I mean, I think we recorded a show on the Thursday evening. We were like, oh, you know, Gunther's written that he's going to Grassini, so looks like this is maybe the more likely outcome. But then from what we were hearing on Sunday, from the Honda camp, it was definitely we have the impression that Mark's going to stay. He's going to see his contract out at least until the end of 2024. And then Monday's test happens. I think... Just hearing, you know, by the by, uh, I think all three Honda riders that tested the 2024 bike all said it was worse. They didn't say that to the press, but they said that behind the scenes. And then you start thinking again, okay, he, does that change Mark's mind? And suddenly he starts coming out and saying to Spanish journalists that he has three potential options and he's going to take the next couple of weeks to think about these things and think about which option is the best one to follow. So it, it's kind of strange. It It seems that it's... It's kind of going from day to day.
0: Yeah, I mean, it went from, it, it not from day to day, from minute to minute, because when he spoke to the English journalist, he had two options. And then when he went to the Spanish journalist, he was, had three options. And there was literally about four minutes between him uh, uh, sort of speaking to us and speaking to the Spaniards. So he, you really feel like he, he's doing this on the fly, um, that, that that there's a lot of things going on.
1: The one thing I'd say about it is, though, it's, it's all well and good to say there's lots of different theories out there there's also a lot of information out there and there's very specific information out there as well. And more often than not, whenever that sort of level of detail comes out, it's because people want it to come out. And this is one of the key things that you see is that it's not one person that has it, but it's a lot of people. So people are being drip fed bits of information so that a full picture can come out. And that's one of the things that's always quite interesting for me in the MotoGP paddock compared to me now in the World Superbike paddock, In the MotoGP paddock, there's a lot of people you can give information to. In the superbike paddock, there isn't. So it tends to be a closed loop a lot of the time in superbike racing. Whereas in GP, whenever you've got 10 Spanish journalists that someone close to Mark is good mates with, each of those people, then it can be Santi feeding some information. It can be Mark feeding it directly. It can be his manager. It can be five different people. It can be Alex feeding information to his mates as well. So when you've got so much information out there that's so specific, I think it's pretty clear he wants out. It's just whether or not that they actually engineered a move.
4: For my opinion, I still think he's going to stay. Maybe it depends whether HRC can post a general manager of the Cazzi course or not, but uh, you know, there's probably lots of negotiations going on still, but I think Mark stays at Honda.
2: One of the things that really surprised me was that two of the Spanish journalists that I talked to who are old pros who've been around forever, they say that this uh, approach that Alberto Puch made to Da to leave Ducati and come to Honda is not just some hysterical story that was drummed up in the middle of the night, that that almost happened. And one of my contacts said it still could, I can't believe that. Uh, but that um, another thing to think about, knowing Honda, knowing the way it works, If you're Mark Marquez and you've decided to leave Honda, let's assume he says, I know what I'm going to do, right? At one time he did this. He says he's going to decide between India and Japan. Japan is Honda's home. Is he going to, after all these years of being a Honda rider, go to Japan in Motegi and announce that he's leaving Honda? I don't think so.
1: Just one thing as well, Dennis, um, just about Gigi. Everyone thought he'd never leave Aprilia either. And he took on a new challenge. And... Maybe ten years into his time at Ducati, he's thinking something similar because back then, for Aprilia, it was also you can be the man that from the ground up builds a MotoGP program. But instead, he decided to go to Ducati.
0: Yeah, because he wanted to win a championship. You know, like he saw that Ducati was his best chance, his best chance of winning a championship, and he's achieved that. For me, I think because Gigi's been in two different um situations where he's had complete control he was in charge of aprilia he was in charge of ducati he was basically given a blank sheet to reorganize everything inside ducati the way that he wanted Uh, and i cannot imagine hrc doing that hrc he would be given a lot of freedom but he would not be given the same kind kind of control and i'm not sure that he would be a interested in working like that b confident of being able to succeed, of being able to do the things that he would want to do if he doesn't have that kind of control.
1: Well, just to ask a slightly different part of it as well about the Marquez stuff, who does it serve for Mark to stay at Honda? You know, does it serve MotoGP well to have the best rider of all time still on the Honda struggling? Does it serve Honda well for him to play out, you know, a lame duck season and then move on at the end of that year? Who benefits from Mark staying on the Honda?
4: Well, it's an unmitigated disaster if he leaves Honda. Um, what other options do they have considering, you know, not only their reputation, but also they have arguably one of the biggest title sponsors uh, in the paddock. Maybe not one of the biggest, but certainly one of the most loyal or the most uh, recognizable outside the motorcycle industry. But, uh, you know, benefits, Steve, uh, it depends where he goes. I mean, if he ends up in Grassini with his brother riding a Desmosedici, then it could be to MotoGP's benefit.
0: Is it more of a disaster if he fails at Honda or more of a disaster if he leaves Honda?
2: I think in the long run, the real disaster is going to be Honda's disaster. If they don't react to this, you know, just talking about Eddie Lawson before Eddie said they built 13 frames for him during the same season in 15 races. He said, whenever he asked for something, it was there two weeks later. He said were they were immediate. They built him a new gearbox in a month, uh, this is not the Honda we're talking about now. This is not the Honda that just got disqualified in the Bull door for having too big a gas tank the other day. Uh, this is not the HRC we used to know. But I think Honda, who just finished the biggest, the most, the most uh, efficient, technologically advanced wind tunnel in the world, uh, which they just put into Ohio, $124 million, uh, if they decide that they care, and they may have told Mark they do and he's having trouble believing it, I can't believe that Honda can't come back. Juan Martinez, who used to be the crew chief for Setejima now, he said his advice to Honda is to go back to being Honda again.
4: How much influence did Irv Kanemoto have over that, though, Dennis? I mean, was he able to be a bit more instrumental in making things happen quicker?
2: (laughs) Well, uh, Eddie said what happened with Kanemoto was... And Kanemoto was just great. He said, I went over to Honda and everybody, the two riders were saying, both Dewin and Gardner were saying, this thing is a pig. You can't ride it. It's dangerous. It's trying to kill you. And Eddie even said some of that stuff himself but he told us afterward he said that bike was a piece of cake compared to the Yamaha he said it was a beautiful thing to ride it wasn't difficult at all the riders were just bad-mouthing it and I went along with it remember Eddie said that famous line he said yes every corner is like the tunnel of death you don't know if you're (laughs) going to make it to the outside or not (laughs) now he says that was the easiest bike he ever rode Uh, and that he and Kanemoto were a great combination the reason he hated leaving Honda you know why he left Honda? I'm going too too far back. Because after he won the championship with Honda, they said, really, that's great, Freddie, but we can't give you more money than Gardner because we've got a contract that he has to be the top-salaried rider. And he said, yeah, but he doesn't make any money at all. <laughs> so uh, he went back to... And then he goes back to Marlborough, gets three times the money, takes Agostini's sponsorship, puts it on Robert Spike, And we're supposed to believe that uh, that wasn't the evil empire? I don't know. Obviously, enough...
1: Dennis, one of the other big stories in MotoGP was the death of Mike Trimby as well. And uh, you have you obviously knew Mike very well for your time in the Grand Prix paddock. What's your big memories of him?
2: Guys, the first time I ever saw Mike Trimby, he was riding a TZ 750 Yamaha at Brands Hatch. Uh, and he was so big on that bike, he made it look like a 350. And I remember uh, Mike, I was club racing in England at that time. I remember him being around and then he sort of appeared in 1982 and 83 as the as the spokesman for IRTA I was talking to Randy Mamola the other day and he said you know we all knew what we wanted but we couldn't talk right we didn't we you know we couldn't communicate with those people they looked down on us they thought we were uh, you know uh, hired hired hands Uh, one of the biggest things that Mike managed to do for those guys was get them start money because they didn't have start I mean get them Paid for the season, not start money. Actually get them salaried on a on a race-to-race basis. Because if you remember right, back in those days, Grand Prix racing paid almost nothing. Unless you were a factory rider like Jacques Magostini or Kenny Roberts or somebody like that, Barry Sheen. You had to race in the internationals. That's how Tom Heron lost his life, racing in the Northwest uh, with a broken thumb um, right after he had... Look, real quick story on... What it was like back then and what Mike Trimby was up against, just go back to Harama. He was 79. John Eckroll came in with a broken collarbone. He's got no money. He's basically got a driver, and he's by himself. He's the guy who's going to be a privateer 350 champion the next year. And he comes into Harama. He needs that start money. He's got a broken collarbone. His idea is we got to get a couple of laps in. So I'm sitting on pit lane watching, and I see Eckerold's bike come out of the garage, and I'm surprised to see him on it. And then a little bit later, about three laps later, I see Eckerold himself walk out of the garage with a clipboard that says Eckerold on top of it, and the word STOP written in. And it was Eckerold holding the board out to himself, who turned out to be Tom Heron, who was qualifying the bike for him so that he could make his start money. And then, of course, Heron crashed in the next practice session, uh, broken thumb. I took both those two guys secretly with Javier Reno from Motorcyclismo, we took him to a doctor in Barcelona, in Madrid, because they didn't want to go to the circuit doctor because the circuit doctor would tell the circuit that they were interested and they wouldn't, that they were injured and they wouldn't get their start money. That's how desperate. It is. And that's why Tom uh, went to the Northwest. Of course, he wanted to ride the Northwest. Uh, but it, that start money would what would, would get him to the next Grand Prix. And that's the sort of thing Mike was up against and all the riders were.
3: It was clear, Dennis, that Mike was a pretty formidable figure. I mean, um, from your experience of, of, of knowing him and seeing how he was in a kind of organizational sense, he, I guess he was, could you tell us maybe an example of how he could stand up to these, uh, these figures that um, obviously he was trying to make change and they were looking at him with, with kind of great suspicion?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, Mike not only stood up to the Federation guys and the circuit organizers, he stood up to Carmelo, too. And that's one of the reasons Carmelo most, most respected him. You know, back in 96, when things looked like they were all settled, people don't talk about it much, but there was a coup, a coup attempt by Irta. Uh, they already, their contract with Dorna was running out, and Michel Metro, Serge Rosset, Cito Pons, and Mike Trimby, We're all part of a group of conspirators, really, as far as Dorn is concerned, who uh, talked to ISL, International Sports and Leisure, out of Switzerland, to try and break away. And what Carmelo said after that was broken, and that's a long story, Bernie came down, broke it up. Tommy Sicardo, this uh, brother of the uh, dictator, president of Indonesia, was also involved in all this, trying to buy it out. Mark McCormick came back over to make another bid. But anyway, it all got scuppered, and Carmelo realized okay, these guys, Worked against me. Uh, I understand that. I've got to get rid of a couple of them. I'm going to get rid of the two Frenchmen, uh, Rose and. But he said, I looked at that organization. I looked at what Mike Trimby had done, uh, the organization in the paddock. Those guys dressed in blue, and I said, this is a competent outfit. I couldn't build a team like this. And he, Trimby, actually Mike said later, I never believed in what we did with ISL, but I wasn't the boss at that time. I had to go along with it, and it was. Uh, Carmelo decided to keep Sito as president, but it was uh, he never forgave Sito. And that's why Sito never got a 500 team, because Carmelo thought of what he did as treason, being a Spaniard. But Mike, uh, the relationship between those two, uh, when we did the book, Racing Together, Carmelo chose the photographs. And there were only three people who really got photographs in the first chapter. Him, Carmelo, Manella Arroyo, and Mike Trimby. Just uh,
1: when you look at what's going to happen next as well, then then it's like for Urta they have to replace Trimby but the one thing that racing has always shown is everything rolls on we've got another round this weekend so everything has to push on and it's always in this situation or in the moment it's always difficult to see what happens in the future for teams when something happens to a rider or a team manager or you know any any role really within the paddock but once you go to the next round and the round after that and the round after that Everyone has to be in that full frame of mind to just be able to, to move on. So what happens next for Erta?
2: To find a replacement for Mike uh, is going to be very difficult because you know Mike. You saw him at the Grand Prix. He was that solid presence in the other room. The guy who spoke in a low tone of voice, but, you know, delivered direct answers. And who could get angry, too, when he needed to? I think, I don't know what uh, his wife Irene wants to do. Uh, Obviously, she's dealing with the tragedy of the loss of her husband right now, but I think Irene Trimby could run that organization throughout the rest of the year, and as as long as she wanted to do it. I don't know about Hervé Poncheral. I find him his temperament is a lot more explosive than Mike's, Uh, but I think in order for the cohesiveness of Irta to continue as it is, someone from Irta has to step up uh, and take Mike's place.
0: Yeah, I had a a brief conversation with someone um, related to her, and they sort of said, you know, like Mike has put a lot of the pieces in place for things to just just to keep on going. And you saw it at uh, uh, really, you saw it at, at Misano um, that Mike died on Friday night, and then. Uh, the, the the event went it ran perfectly and uh, from the ERTA side everything is being pre- prepared perfectly for for India as well you know the the organization keeps running I think there will be some some question marks over what happens with when we getting into 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 discussions between uh, the interests of the teams and the and the interest of uh, of the uh, the championship but uh, you know there are people inside of um, uh, inside of a, a who can who can carry that on. Um I, well, I would like to just change the subject completely, um, Dennis. Uh, when are we going to be able to read your book?
2: Well, we just went to press uh, this week in Barcelona. We just finished. I was just working on the cover uh, or approving the cover today. So uh, I'm going to make a. It's my novel. Uh, Yonder's Illinois has it has only. I put a motorcycle in it. Because I feel like I should have a motorcycle. In it. So I put, <laughs> I put a Triumph Thruxton in it, making a lot of racket and disturbing people while they're in a meeting. But it's a novel that has nothing to do with motorcycle. It's heartland, America, Midwest. Uh, and I'm going back to my hometown, Hoopson, Illinois, sweet corn, cannon capital of the world, uh, to make the presentation in boxcore, boxcar books on Main Street downtown.
0: I I, I I, mean, I've been listening to you talk about, I've heard you talk about it now from probably a Probably a decade at least. I'm really, really looking forward to actually getting my hands on the copy and reading it.
2: Well, me too. <laughs> you know, right now I, I thought I was done. And then my, my daughter-in-law, who really runs the noise businesses uh, in Barcelona, she said, OK, now we've got to do the translation into Spanish. You know, so Kenny and I are working on the translation into Spanish. Trying to get those Midwesterners, you know, when I start talking about this, I go right back to my accent, and I got it right there all the time. I'm being phony with you when I'm not talking that way. But it, to try and transport that into Spanish, that's not going to work. They can't be Morfianos or Andalusians, you know.
3: Is it a State of the Nation novel, Dennis, or is it a, is it a, a thriller? Can you tell us what kind of uh, what's the style of- is?
2: It's what they call upmarket literary. In other words, a literary magazine that doesn't uh, – Novel that doesn't use a lot of complicated Cormac McCarthy words. Uh, but, uh, you know, before I went into this, I went to Barcelona. Uh, I, actually, I won a prize a long time ago as Atlantic Monthly Young Writer of the Year back in 1966. And I went to Barcelona uh, to write. And then I had this—I was teaching English and I had this classroom right on Via Augusta. And every time I look out the window, all these motorcycles were lined up. The start, every time the light changed, it was like the start of a Grand Prix. And I had raced dirt track stock cars back in the States, and my folks had done, they made me swear on the family Bible that we do that. Uh, I had swear I'd never race cars again. But I didn't say a thing about motorcycles. Now, Barcelona, uh, just, you know, I went to the first race I ever went to was 1968, Spanish Grand Prix. I didn't, I was looking the to... Wrong way when the bikes came around, because I didn't know where they were coming from. Salvador Canellas won that. It was the first win by a Spanish team. And I remember, I thought, the way these guys are celebrating, you'd think they'd never won a race before. Well, they hadn't.
1: (laughs) Well, as ever, Dennis, I'm about to go to Aragon, and I'll see your picture on the wall of the media center for for racing around Alcaniz. So that's that's, always something that gives me a little bit of a smile.
2: If you look at that picture, you see I got glasses on in that picture inside my helmet. And, you know, I cured that uh, vision problem by a crash at Cadwell Park. Uh, I crashed uh, coming over the gooseneck, uh, which is, you really get some air when you crash going over the gooseneck. And I hit the ground so hard, I didn't know my wife, uh, but I was flirting with her, which made her even (laughs) more angry than if I had known her. When I finally got myself up into commission to start racing again, I was having, uh, I thought, I w- I've, I've got to do something. I broke my glass. Some. I don't know what it was the matter. I went to have an eye check. I was wearing my glasses and I couldn't see well. And the doctor said, what are you wearing these glasses for? You've got, you know, you've got fighter vision uh, eyesight. And so I think uh, Cad Will Park knocked my head straight and straightened my eyes out.
1: So what we're going to see is Dave now high side themselves to the moon off his GS just to be able to <laughs> save on two pairs of glasses. Dennis, it's been, it's been great having you back on the pod. Obviously, all of us are always excited to get the chance to chat to you, but it's always good for our listeners as well to have that
2: chance. I listen, I listen to you guys all the time. And the important thing is always go a little over an hour because that's what I need for my bike ride so I can hook it up with something else. But when you guys do fifty minutes, I, I don't know what to do then.
1: Oh, the, the, you're not going to like this one, Dan. I think we're going to come in at about fifty-eight minutes at the end of it. But um, it, it is always one of those things that, for all of us, it's great to see. The level of insight that you have and still talking to everyone in the paddock so that's that's great for us and uh obviously now our focus of attention shifts to the indian grand prix at the weekend paddock notes will still be available all the way through the weekend so thursday's show will be available on the normal podcast platforms just to give everyone a bit of a taste of what we give on the paddock Notes show it's a 20 minute roundup from the day's action at each of the grand prix so once the debriefs finish all of our chats with different people around the paddock we will record it at the track but uh, we'll get everyone all the latest news on the paddock notes so check that out on patreon.com forward slash paddock Pass podcast and become a paddock insider to get that all the way through the weekend obviously adam all that we're focused on now is you and your visa so uh hopefully that comes through in the space of the next 36 hours and you're able to get yourself on a flight to india um you're obviously excited to have the the chance to go to somewhere new so it's always exciting to go somewhere like that india is great i've been there a few times and i'd be excited if world Superbikes decided to go back there
4: yeah absolutely steve um positive thoughts for the visa that's uh, the next job but i from what i can gather there's a sizable queue so um fingers crossed it arrives before i have to go to the airport
1: well, the good news about that is you've applied as On Track Off Road rather than Paddock Pass Podcast. That's of much more long standings. check out ontrackoffroad.com to be able to get all the latest from Adam. Neil, you've obviously got no stress. You are able to take it nice and easy this weekend and uh, just get yourself up at what, 5 a.m. to be able to watch all the practice sessions?
3: Yeah, I might be digging the yeah, Dave of Emmett approaching missing the first half of Moto 3 P1 um, on, on Friday. Um, so maybe it'll be a six thirty seven star, start, Steve. But don't tell my bosses. Uh,
1: yeah, well, I tell you what—you've—you never miss the start of a Moto Three session whenever you're at the track, so that is a good step forward. On Dave, Dave, you've obviously got a couple of days left in your holidays before you head back home and uh, get everything set for India for this weekend.
0: Yeah, I mean, by the time I get home on Wednesday night, I should know whether uh, you know whether the Grand Prix is going to happen and how much, how many of the riders and the paddock are actually going to be there.
1: It's definitely going to happen, so uh, you'll have plenty of work to do this weekend. For everyone listening at home just make sure to follow us on Twitter or X at Paddock Pass Pod give us your feedback and any questions that you have and uh, like I said earlier check out patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass Podcast As ever big thanks to Renthal Street for supporting the podcast and we'll be back next week with a review of the Indian Grand Prix and also the Aragon Royal Superbike Round